0: Good morning, good morning, <laughs> good vous <morning. Good> <laughs> uh, so uh, just uh, to give you a, a little heads up, the um, we do encourage you to stick around uh, for the family meeting after the service, and uh, if, if you're new to New Hope, uh, you're welcome to come and see the dark underbelly of our operations, but uh, we're going to have some updates on, uh, on the budget. Uh, we are going to have some updates on the uh, interesting situation that we are in, in terms of trying to figure out where God's going to have us, um, and uh, we also have giving statements. Some of those have already been handed out, but uh, if you haven't gotten yours yet, uh, I should have it. So um, I hope you can stick around, and, and uh, we will let, just let the kids play with knives and matches while the adults meet. Uh, today is the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul, and I'm sure you all have that marked uh, on your calendar. <clears throat> it's the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. I mean, Paul gets his own feast, actually with Peter, but today's the feast of his conversion. And it, it's kind of funny that we have this feast, because in, in a lot of ways, Paul never converted, right? So, for those of you who don't know the whole story of Paul, uh, there's this guy named Saul, who was an ambitious, very ambitious young uh, Pharisaic Jew, He was a student of Rabbi Gamaliel, who was one of the greatest rabbis of the first century. And he was a, a zealous proponent of renewal within the Jewish people. He was all about being faithful to Torah and calling God's people, the Jews, to be faithful to Torah as well. And when we encounter him in the book of Acts... He is in the process of trying to identify and shut down this nascent movement that we know as the church, was then known perhaps as the Way, it was basically a, a sect within Judaism. But these people who believed that Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah and ought to be worshiped as God. Paul, or Saul at the time, knew very well from Torah that. Of course, there's only one God, and he also knew that Messiah wasn't going to do something like show up and die. Messiah was supposed to come and liberate God's people, and the fact that there was still a mess in the world, not least the fact that God's people were still under the thumb of the Roman Empire, meant that Jesus wasn't Messiah, which meant he shouldn't be treated that way, and he certainly shouldn't be worshipped, and so good Jews shouldn't be doing the kinds of things that these followers of Jesus were doing, and so he was going around the uh, Mediterranean Basin trying to uh, eradicate this movement. And he had this experience as he was traveling. He was on his way to Damascus where he had this, basically this confrontation with Jesus. He, he, there was, he was suddenly blinded and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul goes through a, a process of, of uh, regaining his sight uh, and basically realizes that Jesus of Nazareth actually was Messiah and is Messiah and ought to be treated that way. And that if Paul is going to be faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who calls himself Yahweh in the Old Testament, if he's going to be his faithful follower, then he does, in fact, need to recognize that he did make Jesus of Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Messiah, and needed to treat him that way. And as we read the story, if you, you can read it in, in uh, Galatians and Philippians and in and, and, and places in Acts, Paul kind of tells the story. And he, he basically, after this, went off into the desert with his Bible for a few years, trying to figure out how this could be, basically figure out how he could have missed this, trying to understand how what the prophets were saying about Messiah actually did fit what God had done in and through Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. But I think if you had asked Paul about his conversion, he would have been puzzled. I mean, he certainly knew people who had converted. That was part of his deal as he was building... This church of people who had turned away from paganism to follow the one true God of Israel, but I think if you had asked Paul if he had converted, he would have said no I'd, I came to a correct understanding of who Jesus was, but it 's not like i wasn 't trying to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before that and it 's interesting here in chapter twenty three of Acts, actually Paul gets hauled before the the sanhedrin the the uh, Jewish council Uh, because they don't at all appreciate the fact that he has uh, gone off the reservation and that he is no longer hewing to the party line. And so since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him, ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble, and then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. And Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin, and he said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And then if you want to keep on reading, it's this great story where Paul basically initiates a a debate by saying, I think Miller Lite is less filling. And then he gets the other half to say, no, Miller Lite tastes great. And as they're arguing with each other, he manages to escape. Uh, This is actually on the question of the resurrection, but same principle. But when Paul said, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day, I don't think he was lying. I mean, when, when in, in Philippians, Paul talks about, he says, I consider my past life, my life as a young Jewish zealot in a hurry, I, I consider it rubbish for the sake of Christ. He, I don't think he thought that all the stuff that he was doing was, was bad or was wrong. I think he just realizes that it was misaligned. And as you read in Paul's letters, you find time and time again as well as in what he says in Acts, you find this idea of conscience, which is so important for Paul. An individual conscience. Conscience, of course, is what we have witnessing within ourselves to whether something is right or wrong. So let's take a look here at what... Paul is saying about it as we finish up chapter 14 of Romans, and uh, as is customary, I'll just start from the beginning of Romans 14 so we get the flow of what Paul is saying. Accept the one whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another, another man considers every day alike. Well, each one of them ought to be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone. None of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. But if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So you then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? We're all going to stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Don't allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. As we've been working through this chapter, and we have been for the last uh, month and a half or so, many of you, like me, I'm sure, also been thinking about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians in chapters eight and 10, where he addresses the same question, the same issue of people doing things that some folk think they ought to be doing ought not to be doing, and other people not doing things that other people think they should. So I want to, again, let's look at this passage here and hear that that word conscience. What's what's Paul saying about this? Here in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians Paul says, now as for food that's been sacrificed to idols and the, the deal here was that uh, generally speaking in, in a, a city in the Roman Empire if, if you're going to have if you're going to buy meat, your local butcher shop basically is is next door to the temple the pagan temple. And so if you're buying meat, unless you're slaughtering your own animals, which uh, you know maybe if you're out in the countryside might be easier to keep than if you're in a densely packed urban area, uh, if you're going to get meat, then you're going to be buying it from somebody who has given it in sacrifice to, uh, to a pagan god. He says, so as, as for that, and as in many places in his letters, you know, when he goes, now as for it, basically he's re- responding to some question or issue that, that these folks have raised to him. You know, we, all, we know, Paul says, that we all possess knowledge. Yes, that's true. Knowledge puffs up, though, while love builds up. The person who thinks he knows something doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. In other words, you think you know. Maybe you don't. So as for eating food sacrificed to idols, we know. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, that there is no God but one. Even if there are all these so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everybody knows this. Not everybody has this knowledge. So, The situation is that some people are so accustomed to the idols still that when they eat food like that, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. These folks grew up eating meat that had been sacrificed in an idol temple, and so they think that this is meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. And even now, even though they they know in their brains that this idol is nothing, they still are thinking about this meat as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, then it's defiled. See, food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we don't eat, and we're no better if we do. But be careful that the exercise of your freedom doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. If anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what's been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by that knowledge you have. When you sin against your brothers in this way, when you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I won't cause him to fall. And skipping ahead later on in chapter 10, starting in verse 23, he says, everything is permissible. And Here is in in many places in the Corinthian correspondence, he gives a slogan that he had probably taught them and that they were throwing back at him, that they had misunderstood, that he had to straighten them out on. Yes, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, yes, but not everything is constructive. Nobody ought to be seeking his own good. They should be seeking the good of others. To eat anything sold in the meat market without raising a question of conscience, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But... If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, yeah, eat, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, if you're there at that meal and your brother next to you leans over and whispers, hey, this is offered in sacrifice, well, then don't eat it. Both for the sake of the man who told you and for the sake of his conscience, the other man's conscience, not yours. Why should my freedom be judged by another man's conscience? Your your freedom is not not at, at issue here. Your liberty is not threatened by this person telling you this, but his conscience now is. I mean, if I take part in a meal with thankfulness, I shouldn't be denounced because of something I thank God for. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether they be Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, I'm not seeking my own good. I'm seeking the good of many, that they may be saved. So as we've been discussing, Paul is dealing with this situation where where you have both Jews and Gentiles together in the church. And you have people who have come out of a Jewish background who are taught to avoid these pagan temples like the plague. They were taught to keep kosher and only get their meat at the kosher butcher. And you got people who came from a pagan background who are used to having meat coming from this place that, where it had been sacrificed to an idol, and that was part of the way that you lived. That was, that was part of your culture. And now Paul is saying to them, look, both of you guys know, of course, that an idol is nothing. You know that this whole... Idol, temple, sacrifice bit is meaningless. It's whatever they got to do before they actually turn the thing into hamburger, whatever. But, but there's a problem because some people are weak in their conscience. They have a hard time with the idea that you can just go ahead and eat it. And not only are they bothered by the fact that their brothers and sisters are just blithely going ahead, the, the fact that their brothers and sisters are doing that is, is tempting them to act against their own conscience. And Paul doesn't want any of that going on. As we discussed last week, that we're, we're supposed to exercise our liberty, our freedom, in a way that builds one another up, not that destroys one another. Freedom is not the freedom to do whatever you damn well please. It's the freedom to do as you ought to do. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, but it's not the kind of libertine freedom that runs roughshod over our brothers and sisters. It's freedom to do as we ought to do, freedom thoroughly to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. But you also have a situation, right? again, this is going on as Paul's writing this, where you have sects of Christians who are, in fact, claiming that followers of Jesus do need to follow all kinds of restrictions. That if you're going to follow Jesus, you do, in fact, have to keep kosher. You do, in fact, have to observe the Sabbath. You do, in fact, have to get circumcised. And, uh, in fact, they were adding further burdens onto this. He, Paul is not amused by this, and he, he's battling with this, this faction Uh, throughout his letters with this group of people that's trying to deny God's people the freedom to live freely as God's people. They're trying to submit them once again to a yoke of a bunch of rules. Paul says that's not what we're supposed to be doing either. In fact, he speaks so strongly about this. In, In 1 Timothy, in chapter 4, he says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith, and will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry, they order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated. By the word of God and prayer. Paul does not say, well, you know, these people have sort of a different opinion and, you know, we kind of respect that that's the way they want to do it. No, he said these are hypocritical liars. These are people who are oppressing the church. They're trying to keep people from living out the reality that everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And so, in a similar passage in, in Titus, he says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and don't believe, nothing's pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him, they're detestable. They're disobedient. They're unfit for doing anything good. And Paul is not amused by this. So at the end of Romans, when he says that all food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble, he's trying to guard the unity and the integrity of the body of Christ. He's trying to keep the health of the body. But all this happens against the backdrop of how each of us manages the way we conscientiously ought to be following God. He says, whatever you believe about these things, yeah, keep that between yourself and God. Blesses is the man who doesn't condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. So if your conscience is burdened by the idea of having a delicious pork chop, Paul would say, then don't do that. But don't tell Smedley over there that he can't. And Smedley needs to not be a jerk to you by going up in your face and saying, Ooh, doesn't this look good? And I need to clear something else up that there's often a, a, a real misunderstanding here. Paul does say in verse 14 of, of chapter 14 of Romans, as one who's in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that nothing is unclean in itself. But if any, anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. Right? So Paul says, If you regard something as unclean. If your conscience does not allow you to, in good conscience, go ahead and enjoy that, then, then you shouldn't. That makes it unclean for you. What Paul does not say here is that if anything is seems like it's clean to you, then for you it's clean. He doesn't mean that if you think something is okay, then it's okay. He does not mean you get to make your own rules. And you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with the situation where you have a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. Like the pagans around him are shocked and outraged that he's sleeping with his stepmother. If Bill Belichick thinks you're a cheater, then you are way over the line. And Paul does not say about this man, eh, you know, it's, he's got the freedom. All things are pure, all things are clean, including his stepmother, so have at it. No, Paul says, I cannot believe you haven't gotten rid of this guy already. What are you people smoking there in Corinth that makes you think that you ought to be tolerating this for a single minute? Just because we are not pricked in our consciences about something doesn't mean that it isn't something we ought to be concerned about. And sometimes we are confronted with the possibility that our conscience is out of whack. There may be something that we are perfectly happy doing or perfectly happy not doing. And then it comes to our attention that maybe that's something we shouldn't do or it comes to our attention that that's something we're not doing that we ought to be doing. And at that point, we have the option of saying, "Yeah, it seems fine to me. Or of saying, it may be that I'm missing something. And the reason we always need to be entertaining the possibility that we may be missing something is that if we are missing something and we are going ahead and doing things we ought not to do or failing to do things we ought to do, then our consciences do become seared. They do become numb. Some of you know I've had many, many knee surgeries. And so, the nurse says, so, where's your pain on a 1 to 10? I'm like, it's a 0, it's numb. I got no nerve endings in that part. That's not the way you want it to be. So, if you have gone on sinning over and over and over, you may not be bothered by it anymore, not because it's not something you shouldn't be bothered by, it may just be that all your nerve endings have been shut down. Or your conscience can be so defiled, so corrupted, that you actually think that something that is wrong is right. But even as we're supposed to avoid having a seared or a defiled conscience, we're also, I think Paul is saying very clearly here and very clearly in 1 Corinthians, in these two passages where he goes on about this the, the longest, we're also not supposed to have a weak We're not supposed to have such a tender conscience that we are perpetually offended by everything that anybody else is doing. Have you ever had that experience, maybe on a campus, where everybody is walking on eggshells because they might say something that is going to offend the person who is always going to be offended by something? Not that I'm experiencing this right now or anything. But it's, re- I mean, it's really annoying, you know, and the person who is doing that isn't, isn't growing up in the faith. And I think what Paul is calling both the strong and the weak to is to grow up. He's calling the strong to grow out of their selfishness and to be aware of the way that other people are affected by them exercising their liberty. He's calling the weak to grow out of their selfishness and to be aware. That being offended all the time is sand in the gears of these lives that God's calling us to live. Yet there are places where those who are weak will see others exercising their liberty as doing so with a seared or defiled conscience. And sometimes they're right. And there are places where those Paul would call the strong will see the scrupulousness of the weak as weakness. And sometimes they're right. And as we've talked about through this whole section of Romans, the problem with these adiaphora, the problem with these disputable matters, things that could go one way or the other, is it's hard to know what is adiaphora, what is something that's kind of optional, and what really is something we're supposed to hold to. And you may be disappointed to know I'm not going to give you three alliterated bullet points that will tell you exactly how you figure that out. However, I think there are a few resources that we have that we can draw upon always keeping in mind the point of the exercise, which is what Kendall's going to be talking about next week, which is to grow into the community God's called us to be in order to partner with him in his mission of cosmic reconciliation. One thing that we can draw upon, of course, is Scripture. We know that Paul doesn't say, if it feels good, do it. Because there are specific places where he, in fact, precisely does not say that. Where, in fact, he deals with the situation in a different way. We also have the benefit of the creeds. And it, it, your little uh, insert this morning from the National Association of Evangelicals, it's kind of funny that uh, the person uh, who is talking about the uh, our doctrinal core is uh, talking about the core of Christian doctrine, basically by um, acting as though the the Christian doctrine didn't really reach maturity until about 100 years ago, uh, and that the best way to understand that is through an outline of the kinds of things you would find in the doctrinal statement of an independent evangelical uh, missionary agency or school or or parachurch organization or church. At New Hope, we try to go a little farther back, In our case, our doctrinal statement is the Nicene Creed. But there are resources, whether it is a a more recent statement of faith or whether it is something with great, venerable weight like creeds. These guide us. And so when people say, well, as I see it, Jesus rising from the dead didn't really matter as long as we feel good about him and love each other. No, we we say in the creeds that he did rise again. That seems to be pretty dang important. And that's not an optional thing that we get to dispense with if if we find it inconvenient. And we can also look to see how these things have worked out about the history of the church, over, over Lent, we're going to do a quick buzz through church history, and we're going to see that there are places where there have been major splits, and some of those were precipitated, frankly, by politics and, and economics and didn't have all that much to do with theology. It ended up being a theological veneer pasted over it later on. But there are differences within the church. There are people who take communion using wine, and there are people who take communion using grape juice, and they're firmly convinced that the people who aren't doing it that way are wrong. Not just that they're different, but that they're wrong. There are places where we have divisions in the church, and frankly, we see healthy, thriving communities of God's people who hold to different perspectives on those, even on minor theological points where there are differences. If you look in the creed, Right? We we say the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Our brothers and sisters in the Eastern churches say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, not from the Father and the Son. That little clause and the Son, Filioque is the is the clause. Is is a dividing line between the Eastern and Western churches. Yet there are healthy, thriving, faithful, effective churches in both the East and the West. Maybe this is a place where we're supposed to be able to have conversation and difference of opinion and not pick not have to pick one or the other is certainly right. But you also see in the history of the church all kinds of wackiness, all kinds of crazy theological ideas, all kinds of crazy practices, all kinds of really unhealthy ways of dealing with the kind of questions the churches deal with. And these are branches that pretty quickly end up falling off the family tree. These are growths on the body that do not belong there and ultimately find that they get necrotic and fall off. And ultimately, I think the answer to the question of how can we judge whether a particular practice or or theological variation is in fact adiaphora or is wrong Ultimately, I think we have to admit that we can't. That we can't. And this is especially important for us as New Hope, as we are entering into, or we believe God is leading us to enter into this partnership with our, our brothers and sisters in the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland. There are plenty of things that are taught in a typical Episcopal church this morning that I wouldn't... Really be comfortable with the core of their doctrine, the core of their worship is thoroughly orthodox and thoroughly solid, and we would participate in, and we do we, we you know we we lift stuff from the Book of Common Prayer all the time on Sunday morning, but there are people in the episcopal diocese, and probably the majority of them who believe, for example, that Same-sex marriage is not only something people ought to be free to do, but it's something that they ought to enter into and something that, that they should bless. That's not what we teach here at New Hope because we don't see Scripture allowing room for that. Yet, we're going to be in partnership with them. There are people in the Episcopal diocese who believe that our Catholic brothers and sisters are entirely wrong because they will not ordain women as priests. And there are Catholics who believe that the Episcopalians are entirely wrong because they will. Honestly... I think it's going to take centuries for the Holy Spirit to work out these questions in the church. Paul says at the end of Galatians, God is not mocked. He says in Romans, in chapter 12, we were looking at not long ago, he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. You be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody, if it's possible. Insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. And here's the thing, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Ultimately, it is not our responsibility to determine whether a particular theological variation, a particular practice, is quote-unquote right or quote-unquote wrong. There is right and wrong, and there are places within our own community where we have the responsibility within our community to identify that and to teach accordingly and to try to live accordingly. But the reality is that we are in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who take different views on some of these issues. I think what Paul is saying here is it's not our responsibility to straighten them out. It's not our responsibility to condemn them. It is our responsibility to love them and to be faithfully in fellowship with them and to trust that God in his time and in his way will prove, will demonstrate which is, in fact, the way he wants his people to live, which are optional and which are absolutely forbidden. I think if we fail to allow God the room to do that, if we insist on making that happen ourselves, we are arrogating to ourselves Responsibility for the health of the church that is the Holy Spirit's and nobody else's. What we need to have is patience, which can be hard, especially when we think we're right. Somebody else is wrong. But that's what we're called to have. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would be people who trust you with the future of your church. We pray that we would be building here at New Hope a community of your faithful followers that's always open to hearing the voice of correction from your spirit. A community of people who are sensitive to the consciences of our neighbors even as we all seek to grow up together in Christ. We pray that we would be faithful, Father, to follow as you lead, even and especially where it doesn't seem clear what that is going to be. Give us the humility to understand what you're calling us to and what it is that we need to leave to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.